Welcome to the Educate US podcast with your host, Nick Saveri, Dr. Stacy Schultz, and Dr. Patrice Fenton. Three former teachers and administrators talking about a wide range of topics happening in education. Time to educate us. Thank you, of course, for listening to the Educate US podcast. As always, be sure to email the show at the Educate US show at gmail.com. Simply the Educate US show at gmail.com. No special characters other than a little symbol to say at. Let's talk about this particular series, this particular two-parter. I'm excited to say that around school leadership. So Stacey and Patrice had a chance to talk to school leaders. And those are the interviews you're going to hear today. This first part we're going to talk about for Stacey, an interview she did with district leaders for a school that we'll talk about in a moment. But to my co-host, the first question I'm going to ask you both, obviously the three of us were students at one point. And but still students now, right? When we think about the role of the principal or school leader, you know, we always, when we think of principal as a kid, you know, if you hear going to the principal's office, like the oohs and ahs from our, our classmates. And then obviously, as we've now worked in the education space for many years, what's different about the way we've perceived school leaders, not just as students, but even when we first began working in our respective schools to what we see the role of school leaders now looking like? Patrice, I'll go to you first. Just what have you observed and what seems to be the changing definition for that? Yeah, I think, you know, so interesting as you were talking immediately, I had thoughts of uh, my elementary school um, and seeing our print, my principal. And, you know, I had this, it was like, I don't know, they were this mythic person, you know, they roamed around the building, said hello to almost like the president, you know, how he goes around and kisses babies kind of thing. <laughs> I think a principal is like, you know, this kind of mythic figure in the school building that's kind of like, you know, there, you're maybe not quite sure what they do, but you know, they're in charge kind of situation to where, you know, when I was actually a teacher and got to see a little bit closer, um, just how much is on a principal's plate. Um, and there it was kind of like, okay, I get it. You're here to supervise the teachers. You're kind of I thought of them more as like a master teacher, right? So they're there to support our pedagogy and our practices and help us to develop as teachers. Um, but then I realized there's so much more to the job. There's budgets, there's interfacing with district leaders, you know, there's interfacing with parents, of course, there's um, managing staff, non-teaching staff, there's, you know, interfacing with the young people, of course, you know, it's just so many different things. Um, and we talk, well, at least I think a lot about teachers because I'm just partial to them and I think they're amazing, amazing creatures. And I think a lot about attrition, teacher attrition. Um, but there's there's something there, I think, around our leaders and how they're likely burnt out too. And not not as much, at least when as I'm looking at the news and things, is, is discussed around leader burnout. Um, and so now my view of them is like maybe they really are mythic creatures, <laughs> um, simply because they just have to handle so much. Um, and it's just a wonder that they're able to even do a lot of the things that they do. Um, but or and I wonder. Um, what are the ways we need to be supporting them more? How can building leadership, principal leadership, district leadership look different 
you know, at Educate, we talk a lot, well, we embody or aim to embody a, a collective leadership ideal. I'm always thinking about how that might be able to look in school buildings. So yeah, I think uh, we may need to rethink what it looks like to be a principal and not put and figure out ways to not put so much of the burden on one person or even two people. Yeah, because I just don't know that that model really works. Patrice, I too thought of my elementary school principal. Um, and actually two principal things came to mind. One was, of course, when I was sent to the principal office, which I think we all get that, whether you've been sent or threatened with being sent or saw another classmate being sent, I think we all have that memory of going to the principal's office um, and how that felt. And I remember going and it was because I was a, I had a, 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 guy friend I was in elementary school and and we were getting teased and we didn't we both didn't like it and I was a little hot tempered when I was younger and so we got into some trouble and I remember going in and he said listen the door is closed I want to tell you people will tease you all your life you decide how you respond to that and it was just such a nice message of be who you are and whatever to the rest of them kind of thing. Like that's how I took it. And I, I appreciate that too. High school where the principal who was known as the president, because we graduate with degrees said, look to your left and look to your right. Those people won't be here when you graduate. Very stark difference in those approaches to being a school leader uh, to, yeah, what is it now? And, you know, it's interesting you said around collective um, leadership, because actually in the teacher interview that I did, one of the teachers mentioned the um, that some schools are taking on this model where there's rotating leaders and really thinking about that idea of leadership burnout, but also just like, how do you create uh, more shared and distribute collective leadership in a school building? What can that look like? And so I'm really interested about finding schools that are doing those models and thinking about that differently. And I, I wonder if um, school leaders are, are hoping, secretly hoping for some of that too. <laughs> I appreciate you both just sharing just that perception of leaders. And I'm excited to hear because you both have had a chance to be just in the ground talking to people recently, but you both have had leadership roles in your schools respectively. So keeping that in mind, we're going to jump into that first. Now, as I said to you all, loyal listeners, we break this up into two parts like we did recently with mental health because there's a lot to say. So we're excited to keep you all really just moving along in this discussion. Our first conversation is going to be uh, Stacy had facilitated a discussion with a couple of different leaders over at the Education for Change Public Schools, which is a charter school network. Three district leaders all talking about a variety of different topics, but specifically in the areas of demystifying what leadership is at a school level, considering better systems to help students and teachers really make sense of the world that they have the ability to manage. And then lastly, aspirationally, what schools can be. Your website should be a marketing asset, not an engineering challenge. Empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams, Webflow combines the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and places them all in a completely visual canvas. Trusted by companies like Lattice and Discord, it changes the way marketers, designers, and engineers create for the web. Now you can build the site you want without the dev time. Start building for free at webflow.com. 
Today, I'm here with three district school leaders, and they're going to introduce themselves. Can you please introduce our, yourselves to our listeners? Hi, I'm Naomi Pearl, and I am Director of Math for Education for Change Public Schools. My name is Jasmine Tao. I'm the Director of Early Literacy for Education for Change Public Schools. And I am Dr. Brandy Stewart, and I'm the Chief Academic Officer for Education for Change Public Schools. Thank you all for being here today. And thank you for introducing yourselves and letting us know your roles. Along with your roles, what do you enjoy most about them? What brings you the most joy? I think for me, one of the things that um, brings me the the most joy is feeling like I'm doing some work aligned to what I see as my purpose and feeling like I am in schools supporting students, supporting families and really driving change in communities. I would agree with that. I would say that I have a child in the same grade as the grades I support. And so seeing her growth alongside the other kids who are not my children, but who I often, you know, feel as responsible for as my own children, especially when it comes to literacy and going from letters to words to sentences to paragraphs is incredibly impactful. Yeah, I think the I agree with everything that everyone's saying. I just um, right before this, I got a text from a leader at a school who sent me a text of student work. And it's a student who we've been working with for many years. And to see the growth of the students through our work with leaders, through our work with teachers um, over the years, um, that brings me so much joy to see how students can really thrive. What you all are speaking to is something we've heard throughout this series from both, you know, or not both, but from students, from parents, from the teachers, from the mental health professionals, that there's a real deep commitment among all school community members to really seeing growth and change and progress. So that's really echoing for me and, and our listeners who've listened to the series thus far. There often needs to be clarity regarding school district roles. I don't know if you all encounter that, but recently there was an Ed Week article that was talking about reducing district leader positions to reduce budgets. One of their reasoning for doing that is that they were saying that they believe the salaries were bloated. However, what the report really shows is that the wages really compromise such a small percentage of overall school district budgets. And that really the need of like different initiatives and projects keeps raising. What are some myths about your roles that you want to clarify? I think one myth that I would want to clarify is this notion that we are off in some district office doing work detached from what's actually happening in schools. Um, and we actually spend the bulk of our time and the bulk of our week in schools, in classrooms with leaders and really trying to drive the work from the school site and not from offices somewhere detached. I would agree. And I think another either myth or misunderstanding is what role we play in instructional improvement. So I think um, from the outside, people often see teachers as just like, there's a role of a teacher. But for those of us inside district like ours, large urban districts, 
we have a constant influx of new and novice teachers who may or may not have been traditionally credentialed or educated in education. And so a significant part of our role and why we spend so much time at sites is because we are constantly on-ramping people to provide quality education who maybe haven't traditionally had any experience inside a classroom. And I think that is really unique to our positions that we are building capacity and skill at a large scale in order to impact change at the student level data. I think the other thing I would add on to that, right, is oftentimes people value like the part they can see, the doing, but in schools, we also need the thinking, the strategy, the reflection, right? And being people who are in the roles where we're really driving that. We are constantly engaged in research, looking at the latest research, ensuring that we are um, doing best practices and what's right for kids, constantly reflecting on uh, observations and trends and patterns across schools. And so really, how do you value uh, the strategic thinking part that is aligned to like school improvement also. Yeah, I agree with you all. I, I think that's a, I, what Brandy's saying right now is like something I think you do a wonderful job with Brandy is really making sure we have that time to think and make the vision. I think we have seven schools in our district. And so taking the time to make sure that we are uh, making sure everyone's collaborating with each other. We're using best practices, we're using research, but someone has to kind of drive that work. And so it's, I um, I think the myth is that we're driving that work in a vacuum, but really it's a collaborative way of doing it so that we have representation representatives from each site and we can all do this together. You all are touching on like three of the next questions at once, which is <laughs> so amazing. Um, so I'm going to try to take it. Well, we'll, we'll, we will take it one at a time. Um, so when you think about your school's top priorities, right, from that strategy, from those trends, from the research, what are the current top priorities and have they shifted at all over the years? I think coming out of COVID, um, one of the priorities has been around when we think about this idea of acceleration and like closing some of the gaps, the priority has kind of been trying to really drill down on getting really clear about uh, what are the gaps and where do we invest our time? So I would say um, over time, um, our priority for us, at least at our, our our district, is really thinking about what are the, the key places to really align to drive kind of student outcome and achievement and, and fill, fill some of the gaps that we have noticed um, there. Um, so I would say that might, that would be one of our priorities is getting really clear about the areas to really align around and, and drive instruction. Mm -hmm. I would agree. I would say that alignment is especially key from an instructional lens because most students only have, you know, one first grade teacher, one second grade teacher, one third grade teacher. Um, and most kids are mixed across classes from year to year. So if the instruction in class A and class B is significantly different, we never make any large scale traction on the amount of kids who are succeeding and excelling in school because teachers are constantly filling in gaps um, and often gaps that lie in what we call tier one instruction. So whole class core instruction. Um, and in our role, in my role in early literacy, 
we there's been money and investment put into high dosage tutoring to fill some of the gaps that were either created or exacerbated by the pandemic. And a really important message and strategy for our team is to not have that tutoring replace the strong tier one whole class instruction. It should enhance and build on and accelerate for kids. Not we can't constantly play catch up and actually get anywhere. Yeah, for sure. In math, we definitely think about the tier one and how do we embed supports within the tier one to keep um, to make sure that we're teaching grade level standards aligned um, content to students because we know that's the way that students will be um, can be successful and will thrive. I think the other focus that we've had, especially in the last couple of years, we just talked about this in a, our former meeting, um, but it was it's about family involvement and making sure that our families feel a sense of ownership over our schools and belonging and that we are in partnership with them. And I think our um, organization does a fantastic job with that, of really helping our families feel that they're part of the community. And we really, their voices are really um, valued and heard and um, celebrated. Just to add on to that, I would say, kind of as Naomi was saying, that sense of belonging, one of the things that we've seen that has changed over time is really some of the attendance patterns coming out of the pandemic um, and the impact that that also has on just the instructional program of, of, of kids not being in classrooms and in seats and really thinking about how is um, engaging and collaborating with families, how is really building a sense of community involvement how does that drive people's uh, willingness to kind of trust us in a time where the pandemic and um, just kind of ne ne not really knowing like what's next? Like, should I go to school? Should I not go to school? What might happen? Um, we also have the, the issue of like the economic um, impact that the pandemic has had and people having to move and transiency, right? And so potentially I'm currently living with family members. I'm in this school but I actually might need to live somewhere else in the next month or two. And so just trying to consider what does that mean for us as schools to be responsive to those things differently than kind of pre-pandemic where there were smaller groups of, of families and communities who were potentially experiencing that. We're seeing at a larger scale and trying to um, figure out like, how do we address that? And mm -hmm. just honestly, we haven't gotten there yet, but it's the work that we are all also kind of really drilling down and trying to do. Can you tell us a little more about how you're doing that work? How are you engaging not just the families and communities, but also I know you had mentioned you don't do this work in a vacuum, right? You bring representatives in. So what are some of the practices that you utilize as a school community to ensure those different voices are heard and to engage the different stakeholders? Yeah, at every school site and at our org level, we have what we call the FLC, but our family leadership councils. And so um, regularly the Family Leadership Council meets to inform best practices um, at the school site and then meet across school sites to think about what that means for engagement as an organization. We also have a partnership with a group called Families in Action um, where they are helping building uh, family leaders and, and families as advocates um, and pushing into schools and training our um, teachers as well as working with our leaders. Um, we also partner with um, Seneca Family Agencies as well as um, East Bay Agency for Children around mental health support, which also includes 
um, supporting school staffs to support families with accessing outside resources when necessary, potentially doing family counseling or just kind of driving mental health work across our sites. And many of our sites have invested in social workers and um, uh, staffing that may support that. And then at as an org level, we actually have recently um, started our five-year strategic plan. And two of our key vehicles or levers in that strategic plan is a sense of belonging and really working with um, a group of people to think about what does that look like? Um, as well as family engagement. And again, having groups represented across the organization to really drive what are the practices that we're going to do to ensure that this is happening over the next five years. Partnership just rang out like <laughs> amazingly. I mean, just not who is um, within your community, but who's adjacent to it and can really support uh, your community and, and living into that strategic plan, which is where we're going to go next. So for you all, what do you feel is the most significant change that needs to happen in schools? So really, what's your vision for that change? And how would you go about making that happen? Thinking about the strengths and barriers that might hinder that vision to becoming a reality. That's a great question. Um, I think living true to our vision of making, um, having equitable schools where all students feel that sense of belonging and are engaged in the learning in a way that's meaningful for them that leads to that academic success is something that in the space that I work like in that we work on a lot. And so thinking about how to create classrooms where students are not just um, receiving lessons, but actually engaging the work and having ownership over their academics and really engaging um, in academic discourse and um, feeling like school is a place where they belong and they're celebrated and seen um, is really important. And so making sure that our schools are those places and taking those small steps along the way to make sure that we have like the um, a platform to build on. So I think that we have a really strong um, platform right now in in our curriculum and in our um, in our classrooms. And now building on like how do we become facilitators of learner uh, learning instead of just um, um, teachers who are just giving the information? And I think we have a lot of strong examples of that right now in our classrooms as well. Yeah, I would build onto that and say from a structural perspective, I think codifying and solidifying the key skills that are developed in our teacher training processes and then the key mindsets or prior experiences we hire for as we bring in new teachers because the reality of our, as long as all of us have been in education, there's few to no years where we're like, everybody is returning. And so it can't be incidental to the system. It has to be built into our system that we start with people where they are and we train them rapidly because we know the reality of our situation is there are some kids in our system who will have a newer novice teacher every year, K-12. And so we can't leave it to chance whether they get someone who is intrepid and a go-getter and who's going to work to improve or they get someone who either can't or won't do that. And so I think codifying our systems for really targeting key skills and saying, this is what it looks like, this is what it doesn't look like to be a strong educator will help 
um, maintain our pipeline and be prepared for whatever level of change happens without the negative consequences falling on the kids. I would agree with that, just with this vision of when we think about um, what does it mean to be career, college, leadership oriented for the future, right? If that's the goal, what we want to be true for our kids, for them to be able to have choices and make those choices um, kind of steeped in knowledge, then we have to build them as critical thinkers, as as people who can evaluate um, situations, people who can um, be persuasive and have their own opinions. And right now, um, some of the challenges that are pushing against that, like um, Jasmine alluded to and Naomi alluded to, is just, um, again, and coming out of the pandemic with such a, a teacher shortage, right? Is we have an influx of new teachers and that's not where new teachers start, you know? And a lot of times they are, you're, we're spending time around classroom management and the way that they're able to manage the class is often more wrote, follow me, mm-hmm. you know, sage on the stage mm-hmm. where we're really trying to create uh, classrooms where teachers are facilitators of student discussion, mm-hmm. engagement, thinking, et cetera. And so like, as Jasmine said, just thinking about like, what are the really the systems that we put in place to help accelerate, to, we talked about accelerating student learning, but we also need to accelerate teacher learning around how to actually um, create those systems. And with that also being said, how to push back around mindsets around just because a student has a gap in potentially reading or math, that they also can't think critically because they have basic skills that they still need to work on and how to really balance those things um, are the things that are coming up for me of like really where we are trying to drive towards and the challenges that we're facing to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really hear that. And and that's something that you don't often hear school leaders speak to of how do we accelerate teacher learning, right? Because yeah, Jasmine, yeah, there's not a year in education that there's not a school that's dealing with some level of turnover, even if it's one teacher to 20, right? I mean, it really varies a gamut. And I know that since the pandemic, that has really increased. And actually, one of the things we see in the news is that education is dropping as a major, right? Less college students are enrolling in education. More college students are enrolling in business. And that doesn't mean that we won't get people coming into the profession because we we often have alternative routes into teaching, which uh, again is another reason and need for having those systems in place for, I love how you said that, Jasmine, not leaving it to chance for, for our students. Right? And so that's such a powerful way of thinking about it. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Okay, so one of our last questions here today, if a policymaker was in the room with you today, what would you tell them that they need to do tomorrow? I have an answer, but I was waiting for them. No, I, I, don't <laughs> um, I don't know if it's the right answer, but I do think that um, the structures of school is a bit still, is antiquated and it's not necessarily advanced with, Um, some of the changes and needs. So again, when we think about the influx of new teachers um, and not actually having adequate time for them to plan, for them to get trained, 
um, within the work experience. So when we think about like um, the eight to four day, one teacher prep, um, you know, teachers have to go home and try to plan at home and not really thinking about the, the structures that would actually support strong instruction development that would then help imp impact and accelerate kids. And so I do think that there's something for us to think about in terms of like the way the workday is structured, where staffing is structured, which we do have a bit of control over, but with funding, there's only so much you can do, right? So I do think that um, we should think about like, we are still living off structures from what the early 1900s. And so like, how are we really advancing with, you think about other mm -hmm. businesses that have um, kind of skyrocketed rocketed or accelerated, you've seen change in their business models and the way they approach things. Mm -hmm. And we have not seen that in education in, in so many years. And just really thinking about how are we reevaluating uh, what, the right structures also for adults to be able to show up for kids in the right way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I would build on that. It will it will sound cliche, but I think the idea to pay teachers more and especially to pay teachers more in places where we need to build this critical mass of people with experience and good training and pedagogical knowledge, and that should be worth more. You know, I think about, I have a good friend who's in, medical residency and you think about med school plus residency but coming out of that they're going to make well into six figures there is some kind of boost or boon that comes at the end and meanwhile teachers are fighting for you know being in their 10th year in the bay area and not topping six figures that that's just not realistic for the cost of living here and so to what brandy said i think Increasing the funding for extra personnel to switch the model where it isn't just one person with kids all day for six and a half to seven hours, which leaves one more hour on a regular workday to get all of the prep and things done for teaching and also increasing the funding and really incentivizing. Uh, you know, you've, I've seen some of these incentives and programs in rural areas. And so what does it look like to incentivize folks with experience to um serve in communities that have a high level of turnover in order to stabilize the level of high quality instruction kids are getting at a critical point. I agree with everything that's been said. I think I would add also, I would want um, a policy change around credentialing um, for teachers. Um, I think that it is very expensive, which holds back a lot of people who may be wonderful as teachers who just, it prevents people from going through with um, becoming teachers because credentialing is very expensive. The tests are very expensive. The tests are out of date often. So like they are like, you're testing on things like my high school SAT score counted towards be credentialing for a teacher. Like what did I, I know in high school? Nothing, you know, like it was like, it doesn't, um, it shouldn't impact how, what teachers are. I think we could really, um, it really needs to be rethought out of what is a, um, makes great teachers and like how do we credentialing makes sense if we are making it so that we are holding teachers to um, making sure they are high quality teachers. But I'm not sure that our credentialing system is leading towards that. Um, right now, it's a lot of money and it's a lot of testing and it's a lot of um, different structures. Some of the structures are supportive, like mentor teachers or um, making goals and things like that. But I think there's a lot of pieces of it that need to be rethought. Thank you 
all for being here with me today and sharing your thoughts and ideas with our listeners. Before we hop off, is there anything else you want to share or add um, that didn't come up in our conversation? I think what I would say is, and I know they're, I'm not sure if they're the target audience, but all three of us are parents of school-aged children. And I would encourage parents, even if we have the right and obligation to ask, even if we don't know the answer or don't know if the school has the answer. Like I want parents to come and talk to myself and other team members at our school about, can my child read? Show me evidence, yes or no. I think um, to what Naomi said earlier about parent engagement, there's the traditional model is wait to be invited. So back to school night or parent-teacher conferences. And I want to encourage both parents, but then also those of us who work in schools as leaders to say, like, we have an open door policy. You can come up here and ask about your child and we invite that. And if you are angry about your child's performance, we will be angry alongside you and work to fix it. Because I think sometimes our angriest parents are angry for very valid reasons, but they get shut out of the school because of their tone or the way they've shown up when really we should all be angry about children who aren't achieving. We're spending seven hours a day 180 days someplace and have very little to show for it. And so encouraging that coming to the school and asking, please show me the evidence of how my child is doing is something we should welcome. Right. Yes. I love that. And thank you so much, Jasmine, for bringing that in. Cause we often like to include something for parents and the three, my co-hosts and I are all also parents of school age children. So it's near and dear to our heart to, to support our parent listeners and how can they engage in that school community in that conversation? Cause not all parents know how, and that's such an explicit way, right? Like show me how, you know, <laughs> my child is reading, how my child is growing, how my child is progressing, right? Don't just show me, a, you know, what's on the bulletin board, right? Show me what's the progress been like? What's the journey been? So really appreciate that. And again, thank you. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you for listening to the Educate Us podcast. Subscribe to the show, available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please, please, please leave us a review or comment wherever you can. We want to hear from you. If you have a question, comment, or just want to be part of the conversation, email us at theeducateusshow at gmail.com. This has been a production of Leon Media Network. I'm Nick Saveri. I'm Patrice Benton. And I'm Stacey Schultz. We'll see you next time.